find that it is pertinent and powerful and speaks to us right where we are, even in this very age and this very hour, as we've been going through this book of Jude. And we find that even tonight we'll be looking at passages from God's Word that we would not normally readily come to. We would not normally be excited about necessarily saying Exhibit A on this uh, random Sunday evening. We're going to be studying about apostates, uh, per se, or studying about historical examples of apostates. But this is what the Word of the Lord is, and it is, it is for our nourishing, it's for our admonition. And this is what happens when you study God's Word, verse by verse, text after text. God knows what His people need better than, than I do, even as the, the shepherd uh, preacher here. And uh, we give thanks to the Lord for that as we come week after week, as we study the Word of God, His Word meets us uh, right where we're at. So hear the Word of the Lord as we turn to Jude, beginning in verse 3. The Word of God says this, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. We'll stop right there for our passage this evening. This is the word of the Lord. Last time together, as we looked at this passage, we've been walking through, beginning in this new section, verses 5 through 7, looking at what the Bible describes as those who are examples of apostates, or particularly the sin of apostasy. And last time we saw the condemnation that apostasy brings, that is reserved for the apostates. We saw that in verse 4. They are ungodly. They are lawless, you could say. The fact is they perverted grace, and they denied Christ. They deny his person and his work. We've given a definition, a subtle definition for apostasy that literally means a turning away from the truth or a falling away from the truth. This is someone who has shown all the signs of salvation. They've given an emotional response. They know the language. They know the word of God. But the problem is, is they're not, they're just not saved. And there comes a point in their journeying, in their walk in this life, where they turn away from the word of God. And yet some, even though they have inwardly turned away, they have not outwardly done it. In other words, they have people deceived. They have people fooled. And that is why Jude is giving the warning that saying, even within the congregation of the assembly of the people of God, there are people that are like this. There are people that exist. Now, time will prove them to be a full-blown apostate. And at some point, they will reveal themselves to be such, even though at the very present moment, they may not be known as that just yet. 
So we see the condemnation. We've already looked at the condemnation that belongs to the apostates. We saw the warnings, the acknowledgement of it in the New Testament. And then secondly, we saw the condemnation that can be demonstrated from the past. And here Jude gives us three historical examples of teaching his audience and us by extension of what this sin is. And so he surveys the Word of God going back into the Old Testament, and he gives three examples. The first one is, that we looked at last time together, apostate Israel, or apostate Israelites. And their key sin that we take away from their apostasy was one of unbelief. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The second illustration was that we'll look at tonight is the apostate angels who rebelled against God, were discontent with their status, with their estate, with what God had ordained for them, they left that, and that is also an expression of apostasy. And then thirdly, we'll see the apostate Gentiles, particularly revealed in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a third aspect of apostasy as it's manifested, which reveals itself in the fruit of sexual immorality in all of its forms, particularly we'll see tonight in homosexuality. Second Peter verse 4 is a companion passage, so if you're taking notes, you may want to take note of that. We've referred to it a couple of times, and that Peter marks the same theme, marks the same issue in his epistle there in 2 Peter. Going back to the first example that's given to us, apostate Israel. Unbelief is at the heart not only of their sin, but in one sense, unbelief is at the heart of all sin. Lack of refusing of taking God at his word, rejecting the truth that we know to be true. But this was particularly the key hinge sin of the people of God that were delivered from Egypt. And as the journey of the people of God, as they went into the promised land and on forward throughout the Old Testament, again and again and again, their key problem was the sin of unbelief. So he takes us back. We looked at the example in Numbers chapter 14. There are many examples in the Old Testament that we could look at that are key references for the unbelief in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. But we saw that the key pivotal event was Numbers chapter 14, just before the children of Israel embark upon the promised land. This was their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. They sent the spies of the land. You remember, sent 12 spies of the land. And when they returned, 10 immediately were filled with fear, filled with unbelief. And they said, we cannot do this. And two spies said, we absolutely can do this. Their hearts were full of faith. Joshua and Caleb, if you remember, believed the promises of God. Their eyes were not fixed on the here and now and the, the giants in the land and the walls and all the different problems. Their hearts were fixed upon their mighty God. Daniel says this, I believe it's Daniel chapter 10, the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. It's just a reminder to us that those that keep their eyes fixed on who he is, that he reigns on his throne, that his throne supersedes every other throne, it removes the fear of man. The fear of God removes every lesser fear or every other fear. And this is what Joshua Caleb embody for us. Is they're the only two who return saying, we got this. We can follow God into the promised land. He's delivered us from Egypt. He's provided for us. He's given us food in the wilderness. He's only ever done what he said he will do. God has not failed us once. In fact, our theme song in the month of January is God is faithful. God is faithful. That would be the, the song we sing at the end of each service. And that's what they can say here. God is faithful. We can trust him. We can rest in him. And yet, the majority of this people group, their hearts are filled with unbelief. So this is the first example of apostasy, unbelief. So friends, just as we leave that first example, 
May we search our hearts and say, God, forgive us, as we saw this morning, Lord, where Peter says, oh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to identify the unbelief where I'm doubting God in my life and weed that out. The calling for us as the church and as Christians is to search our heart and examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. And when we identify, when the Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God and we identify areas in our heart where we are struggling with the sin, how we can know that we are truly the chosen of God, that we're not apostates that will be revealed in time. So we confess that. We repent of it and we run to Christ and say as well, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The second example is given to us in verse 6, going to the book of Jude, looking here in verse 6, of apostate angels. Apostate angels. And the verse says this, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He, God, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, the exact source or the occasion of which Jude is referring to here is, is often debated. In fact, the reality is, is it's not clear which instance, there's two key main instances that Jude is, could be referring to. One thing we know for sure is that Jude's audience is very familiar with what he's talking about. In fact, that's why Jude doesn't go on to greater explanation. And I'll tell you this, trust the Word of God where your mind wants to know more. Go, if you want to know more, simply look at the references that talk about the fall of Lucifer and his angels. Those references would be Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, then of course Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. All those passages, those four main passages, detail two major incidents with the fallen angels. The first one would be the original fall, of those angels where they become demons, they become fallen angels, rejected by God because of their disobedience. There is a hierarchy within the angelic order, Scripture clearly teaches. There are archangels. There's only one archangel mentioned in Scripture. There is, there is uh, Michael and there is Gabriel. Gabriel is the special messenger of the Lord. There are two angels that seem to be even preeminent above all the other angelic orders. The Bible clearly teaches us about seraphim and cherubim. The Bible has a lot to say about angels, so there is, we, could, we could have a whole series on just the angelic order and what the scriptures teach about it. It would be absolutely fascinating. But one thing we know for sure is when you look at Isaiah 14, and we will not be turning to Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 tonight, but the Bible does describe in the fall of Lucifer himself. Lucifer was an, was an amazing creature. Lucifer was not the snake that we think of when we think of snakes today. In fact, those passages show us that he was the most amazing creature probably ever created in the angelic order. He was robed with fine jewels. He was robed when he moved. It seems as if the text is literally communicating that music surrounded him. Some even go so far as to say, we don't have confidence to say, that in his very essence and his very movement, he was a musical being. Literally, he was a being that had, uh, emoted music. Others say, no, the connotation is simply this. He was a royal. He was, there, there is a hierarchy. Lucifer certainly is a created being. And that's one thing we need to take away from all of this is that Lucifer, Cherubim, Seraphim, Michael, Gabriel, they are all created beings. So when we think about spiritual warfare and as we think about battles, spiritual battles that take place, don't be fooled into falling into this lapse of thinking that God is struggling with any of these created beings that he's created. And that's oftentimes what people begin to think over the course of time because they don't know the word of God. We need to have our minds informed by the Word of God, transformed by the Word of God, and it helps us to understand. So there is a hierarchy, and Lucifer himself was able to seduce 
a third of the angels. So when the Bible refers to the angels, it just simply refers to hosts and hosts of angels. It just tells us there's an in number, in, um, uh, innumerable uh, count of angels, hosts of angels. In fact, there's hosts and hosts of angels. So we don't know how many there are. We know that there's spiritual beings that do not have a body, but yet they can take on a body. And what the Bible says about angels is absolutely interesting and mesmerizing, but yet our focus is ultimately not on them, but it is upon the Lord himself who created them. Now, here in our text, Jude does not identify which occasion is the one he's referring to. But when you look into 2 Peter, the passage I just referenced a moment ago, 2 Peter 4, and also look at the Jewish traditional writings outside of Scripture, you will find that there is much written about these angels. We simply take that as fact. We, I mean, not, excuse me, we don't take that as fact. We simply take that as interesting. We simply take that as, okay, that's great. But the reality is it is not inspired Scripture. It does not have the stamp of the Holy Spirit of God upon them. In fact, as I've read some of these books that I've not been super familiar with, one of the things that just stands out to me is that it's clear this is not Scripture. This is not a part of the canon of Scripture. And the only way I know how to tell people this is if you, if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you do have the Holy Spirit of God and you read something like, uh, and, and be careful, discerning, but you read extra biblical writings canon, uh, outside the canon of Scripture, it just doesn't ring with authority that the Holy Spirit gives his precious and inspired and errant word. If you know what I'm talking about, are you with me? Does some of you are looking at me like, like this this evening. I just take my word for it. If you were to take up the Book of Mormon, if you were to take up the Koran, if you were to take up these, these other religions' books, one of the things that rings hollow about them is that there's no authority to it. It sounds like someone came up with it, right? But that being said, there are other writings outside of the canon of Scripture that is common within Jewish traditional culture. And they spend a lot of time writing about Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Genesis chapter 6. Just to reduce it down to two or three brief things, there are different views. One is this. As Jude refers to this example of apostasy within this angelic order, some say, well, this refers to the original fall of Satan and his angels, as described in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Others say that this refers to the invasion in Genesis chapter 6 of by fallen angels with mankind in the pre-flood days of Noah. And that in this invasion... There's two ways you can understand it. One is that the sons of God making reference to two people. There's two different. So with each one of these, there's these little branches of how to, how to break it down. But some say the sons of God are the sons of Seth. And the daughters of Cain there in Genesis 6 are the daughters of men. And so the sons of Seth and the daughters of men, they, in ungodliness, they simply were not spiritual. So unregenerate and regenerate people groups came together. And that's the sin that, that we see in one sense. I do not believe that that's what Genesis 6 is referring to. A second view of how people look at Genesis 6 say, well, the fallen demons literally came and saw that the daughters of men were fair and beautiful, and they fell in love with them, they cohabited with them, and created a race of men or monsters to which were so bad and devastating that God would ultimately destroy with the flood. I don't believe that's biblical either, according to what you understand about the whole teaching of the Word of God. Jesus says in Matthew 22 that angels are not married nor given in marriage. And so the idea is, is even though angels can take on a body, even though angels in a sense can have a manifestation, it, what's very clear is they have to take over a human host. Fallen angels, demons, that type of thing. In referring to what we're looking in Genesis chapter 6. Whatever Genesis 6 was, one thing we know for sure, it was bad. 
In fact, it was so bad that God absolutely poured out his wrath through the flood waters upon the earth. As we think about our current day and age, one thing we could, there's all types of speculations about the inter details, and we just have to trust the, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But I'll say this. One thing the Bible makes very clear is that there is nothing new under the sun. We think there is, but there isn't. And we are starting to embark upon levels of knowledge in our modern society that I don't think are so new actually after all. You think about articles in medicine and science to tell us about transhumanism and implanting chips into the brain and all these different types of things, part robotic aspects and part human aspects. We're, we're on these realms of learning and knowledge to where it's concerning. We're acting like God in some ways. And so it's, it's a nuance. There's a, obviously, we need discernment as we think about medicine and those types of things. But there's nothing new under the sun. And whatever the sin was that was corrupting mankind, that was absolutely uh, contaminating mankind, one, one thing we know for sure, God was not going to have it uh, any longer. And so he poured out his wrath upon him. Jude does not, coming back to Jude, Jude does not give further amplification. He does not amplify or commentate. But the key thing we need to know for our learning and our admonition is that present here in the text is the heart sin of apostasy. And as we look at verse 6, these angels sinned, and they sinned grievously, and at the root of their sin was that they did not hold to their first estate. They sinned because they did not retain their original position of submission and authority assigned to them by God. Angels are messengers of God. In fact, that's what angel means. They dwell around the throne of God. If, as we look at what the scriptures teach, as we saw in the scripture reading this morning, the angel came to Zechariah and to Elizabeth and gave them the news of the birth of John the Baptist. They are sent ones. An angel literally means a messenger. In the scriptures, an angel can refer to a messenger of God's word, a pastor or a preacher. It's used in that way as well. But when we think about the spiritual beings of angels, angels are those who serve God. They exist for one thing and one thing alone. That is to do his bidding. Angels, as we think about the providence of God, we often talk about the providence of God and his superintending care. The providence of God is God's breakdown of his sovereignty. God's providence is the superintending care in our everyday realm of the normal things of life. And angels, God has ordained the means of angels to carry out his revealed will in our everyday lives. They are unseen, but yet they do the will of God. All throughout the Old Testament, they bring the message of God uh, to his people in different ways. We see that in, throughout the scriptures, angels bring judgment and bring punishment, even the death angel we see. In Second Chronicles, we see David sin grievously by taking a census, and God sent the angel of the Lord, is a common refrain that we see in Scripture, the angel of the Lord, to bring out a pestilence, to slay a whole third of the, the people of God. And they, the Bible says that David was terrified as he looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord hovering between heaven and earth. And so as you just read your everyday morning Bible reading, that'll wake you up in the morning as you just think, what was that like? David simply looks up. God gave him, the, gave him the ability to see the angel of the Lord. That's huge. I mean, that would be a, a fearsome sight. One thing, just as an aside, that we often, you know, you hear like Joseph Smith, who had the revelation of the angel Moroni. Joseph Smith says he laid in his bed and talked with an angel. Nowhere in Scripture do you ever see anyone comfortable enough to simply casually lie in bed and talk to an angel. So I can just tell you, based on what people don't know to be true about angels, it shows you they don't know the word of God or the truth of Scripture. Anytime God's people have seen an angel or come to recognize 
they're, they're with an angel. M the majority of time, I would say, fear is struck in their hearts. They realize this is a being that is not like us. They're concerned. They're, they're threatened. And the angel will often say, fear not, because they're very afraid, right? In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, as we consider this sin that Jude refers to, is that they did not hold, stay in their original designation, the barriers assigned for them. Acts 17, verse 26 reminds us that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times, excuse me, and boundaries of their dwellings, that literally the actual habitation where they live. And in the same way, God did this for angelic beings as well. They exist to serve him. And they left that. Isaiah 6 tells us that they, that they literally say, holy, this particular group of angels that surround the throne say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and was, uh, is to come. In the book of Revelation, we see that as well. They are literally those who burn for God because they are exposed to God. And if you want to talk about what is the heart of apostasy, it's leaving that and rejecting that and saying, we're seduced by Lucifer, this ringleader, this particular created angel, and we want the glory. We don't want to be told what to do. We want to do what we want to do. And to leave the presence of God in eternal glory and to follow Lucifer has brought them swift and everlasting punishment. In fact, it's interesting. The result here in our text is that God judged them by punishing them, placing them in a temporal place of darkness, in chains, according to our text, awaiting a future day of judgment. And they will be assigned to a fuller, final, eternal punishment. Now, the Bible says this about these angels who sinned against the Lord. Verse 6, again, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but they left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So these angels were given special privilege to be in the presence of God. They were given great light and truth. They had a privilege like we do not have, obviously. And now they sit in great darkness, in great blindness. No more access to God. No more access to the truth of Scripture or the truth of understanding of His revelation or His will. There is a deluding work, you could say, that has affected even them by Satan. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, the maniac of Gadara says this, those two men say, What have we to do with you, Jesus, thou Son of God? Have you come to judge us or torment us before the time? And there's a hint there that they know it's coming. They know the reality of who Jesus is. They know the judgment that awaits them. And yet, they don't know when it is. There, there, there's light that they do not have. They don't understand. They don't have access to the ways of God in the ways that they once did. So as we look into this passage, what we find here is that the key aspect is that they did not stay within their own authority. So as we make application, they, did not, they left their proper dwelling. They did not stay within their own authority. Turn with me to 2 Peter 2.4 briefly. And as we make application for our own ways, this is a version, an understanding of what apostasy is. It's where the will of God for my life is rejected. And I say, God, I know this is what you want me to do, but no. I don't want to do it. This is one of the key things we see from this apostasy that's revealed through these fallen angels. Let's not act like that the will of God is not a struggle for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Often, many of us struggle with accepting what God has called us to do. And there's a process that goes with that. As we consider the root of this version of apostasy, may we look in our own hearts as well and say, yes, Lord, submit to his plan 
our life. Second Peter 2, 4, for God, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. That's a key phrase we need to come back to, verse 6, in just a moment as we look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, saying, look back to Sodom and Gomorrah, see what, how God feels about that. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to, to, to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. As we look at these two passages of Scripture, again, what is the lesson for us? Well, number one, sobriety is one. God does not hesitate to judge apostate sinners who know the truth, who've been exposed to the light of God's word. And if the angels, here's the key. If the angels of heaven can be seduced by Lucifer and fall away from the presence of God. See, you and I think the opposite. We think, if I could just behold his glory, if I could just see what Peter, James, and John saw in the Mount of Transfiguration, I, that would give me the pep that I need for my Christian life today. Right? If I could just see uh, that, that vision that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, oh, how that would just turn me into turbo Christian mode. But here's the thing, many throughout the scriptures have and experience the same things. And it's a lesson for us that if they can fall from heaven and paradise, then friends, we can as well as we're exposed to the truth. Now, I don't mean losing salvation, but it's a sobriety. That is the lesson we take away is don't fall away from what you know to be truth, from the light of scripture. Don't reject it, but heed to it and respond to it. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Every time you and I come before the word of God, we need to remind ourselves of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Lest we think it doesn't apply to us. Lest we think we already know this. Lest we think I've heard this before. Lest we think, yeah, 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 or become too familiar with the things of God. In fact, you could say it like this. Unbelief is not only a prevailing sin here of apostasy, but pride is the prevailing sin as well. It's the theme of sin. It is the prevailing theme of each one of these aspects of apostasy. As we'll see in just a moment, just think about the, the pride movement today. Pride is not only at the root of sin, but particularly this is something that the gay pride movement exalts in. This is who we are. We're proud of it. Just making connections here. But pride is the prevailing sin of apostasy. And so that leads us to our third historic illustration. Not only apostate Israelites, apostate angels, but apostate Gentiles revealed in Sodom and Gomorrah. So look with me in Jude verse 7. Jude verse 7. And the word of God says this, And Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, that's what Peter says in 2 Peter 4. They serve as an example for the ungodly, the unbelieving. 
Here, he's picking up on the language that we see Jude uses as well. Excuse me, Peter's not picking up on the language, but he's using, Jude's using the same language. And going back to this passage, God meant for this incident to be an example for all time, for how God deals with not only apostasy, but how he deals with this particular sins of these people. Now, in Genesis chapter 19, you will find the background passage to the apostate Gentiles, as revealed here in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the third example. In fact, the destruction of these cities is at the southeast corner of the Dead Sea, and it's used over 20 times in Scripture, and it's an illustration of God's judgment during the days of Abraham and Lot. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, this particular area is described for us in the days of Abraham as an amazing place. If you could pick anywhere to live, if you're just looking at a map and thinking about setting and the sun setting and topical graphs and all that type of thing, you would pick this region. Uh, this, you would pick this area. In fact, Genesis 13.10 refers to this area as the garden is like as unto the garden of the Lord. God often refers to, as we look into the scriptures, the most fertile places. Interestingly enough, you think about today, some of the most fertile places are some of the greatest places of depravity. Places around the globe where people go with the perfect setting and the perfect places, vacation destinations, you could say. But they often, they often double as places of depravity and full manifestation of that depravity as well. It's on full display. Now, as we look into the passage, uh, go with me, if you don't mind, to back to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. And I know that's maybe not as a familiar passage, but I think it'll be helpful for us to consider this apostasy as revealed in Sodom and Gomorrah. What we find in this passage is that oftentimes when a society, much like as we make a parallel to our American society here today, when a society has economic success and prosperity, social prosperity, we think of that as the blessing of the Lord. We think of that as we pray for those things, and there's an aspect of that that is right. The Bible makes clear that the diligent worker uh, experiences riches and a return for his labor, so we're not getting into that aspect of work and labor and sowing and reaping. But generally, looking at cultures and societies where there is great blessing and prosperity, there's also some key sins that begin to manifest themselves as you're turning to Ezekiel 16. It's often idleness and boredom. Often we see that these prosperity leads to idleness and boredom and also leads to greater, greater wickedness. Oftentimes we see the saying, maybe you grew up hearing, idleness is the devil's workshop, right? As you look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, an abundance, notice here, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty. Again, coming back to that root of pride. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. This is the Lord speaking. And what it makes clear as we look at this is pride one of the root sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, but friends, we would be remiss if we just simply say, well, what? let's look back there and say, okay, they struggled with economic prosperity and pride. If that's what we take away, we're missing the point. We live in a land that God has poured out his blessing upon. If God has ever been gracious to a people group, to a nation, to a country, it has been us, friends. If we consider the parallel between 
the ancient judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and how God describes it, surely we see a parallel of America here in the text today. I'm not talking about, like, actually. <laughs> uh, I'm just talking about a parallel as we make application. Some people think they find American descriptors. I don't, I don't hold to that. This is my personal opinion. One thing we see here in Ezekiel 16 is pride. The idea that we are superior. And let me just remind, all of, remind me and remind all of us here this evening, God hates pride in LeGrand Land. And God hates pride in us. God despises pride. And it's for, and if you have a hint in your heart of saying, well, why does God hate pride? It absolutely destroys us. God knows what pride does. God is holy. He is without sin. And he will not share his glory with another. And the root of all sin ultimately is the sin of pride. In fact, Proverbs makes clear that God despises pride. Those who look down upon the poor, the needy, those who are made in the image of God, the scriptures make clear. But the idea of thinking that I am superior, that we are superior, this was the key sin of pride. Also, we see here in this passage, there was fullness of food. That means economic prosperity, full options, if you will. And then notice what Scripture tells us, ignoring the needs of the poor. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. There was no concern for the least. There was no concern for others. There was no concern because they were too abandoned to their own idleness and their idleness that led to gross immorality. So as we consider these things, coming back to Sodom and Gomorrah, just to kind of give you some understanding, why did God particularly pour out his wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah? I think we see some hints in Scripture, not, not to mention the gross immorality. Sodom and Gomorrah existed about 450 years after the flood. Remember, the flood was given for all time as an example of what God thinks about those who only pursue uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 says they only, men only sought to do wicked continually. It was in their heart and in their mind. Friends, that describes modern culture today. And God poured out his wrath upon them, serving as an example for all time. The previous generations who would come out of Shem, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, as they repopulated the earth. How does God feel about sin? How does God feel about these sins? Simply look back to the flood and run to Christ who is the one door of salvation. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah were exposed not only to the light of the general knowledge of God, but they knew of the flood. They were not ignorant of the flood. In fact, if you line up the timelines, it is believed that Shem, one of the sons, at least one of Noah's sons, were still living. Genesis chapter 11, verse 10 and 11. It was only 100 years after the death of Noah that Sodom and Gomorrah existed. Genesis chapter 9 Verse 28, so they would have known the message that Noah preached. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And we see that they rejected the light that they had. Romans 1 makes it very clear that mankind, as a default setting, knows there is a God in his heart. And part of the Romans 1 judgment that God gives to nations, a delusion of a blindness, or ultimately giving them the fruit of their own way, is as they reject the light that they have, the inner understanding that there is a creator, that there is a God, and say, we will do what we will do. We will pursue what we want to pursue. God gives them over to a reprobate mind. And so we look back at Sodom and Gomorrah. We look back to the flood and say, this is how God feels. This is what God will do. This is how God can act towards these particular sins. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 through 25 describes the, the instructions, the prohibitions given to the people of God, where God says this to his people. He says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, 
For by all these things the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you regularly. God would instruct his people to go in and cleanse the land. Literally, the land is vomiting out due to a number of different types of sins. Uh, God was concerned about protecting his people for a, on a number of levels. But he would instruct them to go out and to purge the land. Verse 25 of Leviticus 18, For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. The land vomits out its inhabitants continually. So as we put these passages of Scripture together, it helps us to understand very clearly what this judgment was. Sodom and Gomorrah had general revelation, but yet they had more light than we probably give them credit for. And they not only rejected it, but they gave wholesale abandonment to a particular sexual sin. In fact, the usage here, uh, going back to Jude 6 and 2 Peter Four is all sexual iniquity. And that's all, we'll leave it there. We don't need to go any further. It would not be helpful for us tonight to pursue that. Genesis chapter 9, very quickly, as we wrap up this particular study, I'll invite you to turn there with me. And let's just let Scripture speak for itself. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 1. We'll see and refresh ourselves on this conclusion of how God poured out His judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, as you're turning there, I'll remind you, verse 7 of Jude says this, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, they are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So let's remember that. Turn to Genesis 19, beginning there in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. If you remember, the background context is three. The angel, uh, what we believe to be an incarnate, a pre-incarnate appeared of Christ. Christ, it seems as if this, if that is what, what we believe it to be, what, is not present with these two angels who continue on into Sodom and Gomorrah. They're, they're done visiting with Abraham, have a meal with Abraham. They then move on beyond that. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face towards the ground and said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the open square. Why would they do that? They are serving as an example to simply say, they're revealing, exposing the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah one final time, you could say. Verse 3, But he insisted strongly, so that they turned in unto him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them carnally. So Lot went into them and said through the doorway, shut the door behind him. He said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do with them as you wish. Don't ask me to explain that to you. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were in the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary in trying to find the door. 
What's interesting about this, and this we'll just stop there, is you know what comes next is the angels go and instruct Lot to tell his family to flee. The wrath of God is coming. And the saddest, one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture is simply this, is Lot begins to tell his family, we, we got to get out of here. The judgment of God is about to be poured out upon this place. They thought he was joking. It shows that if the Scripture didn't tell us that Lot was a just man, there's not a whole lot of evidence to show otherwise. His light certainly wasn't visible. He was not leading and teaching his family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teaching them to fear the Lord. They thought he was joking. They did not take him seriously. They escape and barely get out. Of course, you know, remember Lot's wife, the scripture instructs us, she turned back. They were told not even to look back at the judgment of God, and she did, and turned into a pillar of salt and lost her life. But the text here, verse 11, was even when these men were struck with blindness, they continued to weary themselves in trying to find the door. That's how depraved this whole place was. Even in their stricken state, you could say, they were still trying to pursue their ambitions, their physical ambitions. And friends, such as all, all those who turn away from the truth. There's a companion sin. Of course, Simon and Gamar were known for their sexual immorality. But again, we come back to this. What is the lesson? Apostates know the truth of God, that he exists, and yet they reject it. They turn away from it. There comes a point in their life, both inwardly and at sometimes publicly, where they say, I know this is wrong. I know this is against God. I know this clearly violates God's word, and yet I'm going to continue anyway. In fact, I'm going to not only continue in it, I'm going to be bold in it. I'm going to carry it out in a public fashion. And when you say, well, Legrand, how does this look, what does this look like in the church today? Well, does any explanation need to be given? In the church today, all around America today, you can see transvestites in the pulpit. You can see men dressed up like women pretending to be pastors and preachers, pretending to, to represent the Lord all over the church today. If, if, I could give you an abundance of articles if you're lacking. If you're, you're saying, Legrand, what you say is a lie, just come talk to me, and I can share the information with you. It's embarrassing. It's gross. The sexual immorality that we see on full, bold display and recognized and accepted even within the realm of the church and the life of faith. People have turned away from the Lord. And there comes a point where they say, a choice must be made. This is no longer, listen here, this is not about a sin struggle. This is, a, I love it and I choose this over God. And I am not giving up this for God. Wait a second. You've grown up in the church. You know the truth. Wait a second. You prayed the prayer when you're, you know, whatever. Yet there is a wholehearted abandonment to this sin. And it may not be revealed in the here and now, but there's going to come a point where time will reveal it. And only the Lord knows what the end of that result will be. But I think it would be helpful for us as we conclude tonight, just to kind of bring these three historical examples together, to go back to the book of Jude and as we conclude, to put this together, and I think as we kind of walk through the text, we'll call it, by way of application, as we think about the sobriety of these examples, the sin of unbelief, turning away from the not submitting to God and His God-ordained calling for our life. You can see today men and women say, well, I don't want to be a man. I want to be a woman. Or I don't want to be a woman. I want to be a man. I identify as this. We could pull that out of that example of the angels who held not their first estate. They reject God's calling for their life. Listen, our society says not only is that like, okay, we celebrate it. 
You do you. You be you. You go follow your heart. We live in a society today that just magnifies it and celebrates it, listen, as if it is normal. This is what God's Word says about it. Now, to bring it back home, I think we'll see a composite. Going back to the book of Jude, we're going to go quickly, bullet point style, and we'll see a profile of the old, of overall. What Jude gives us is the profile of the apostate. Beginning in verse 4, as we've looked at already, they are ungodly. They don't think of God. They don't submit themselves to God. They don't pray to God. We've already looked at that. Verse 4, they're also morally perverted. Verse 4 tells us they deny Christ. Verse 8, they defile the flesh. Verse 8 tells us they're rebellious. Verse 8 also says they revile holy angels. Verse 10, they are dreamers. Verse 10, they are ignorant. Ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, Paul tells Timothy. Verse 10 also tells us they are corrupted. Verse 16, they are grumblers, the fruit of their life. These are, you put this together, here's the composite profile of an apostate. They are ignorant, they are corrupted, they are grumblers, verse 16. And you say, well, that's not, what's the big deal about that? God literally judged Israel because of their grumbling. Struck many of them with leprosy. Instance after instance after instance, what, what does God feel about grumbling? Simply look to Israel in the wilderness. Verse 16, fault finders. Also, verse 16, they are self-seeking. They're arrogant speakers and flatterers in verse 16. We see a number of things there. Verse 18, they are mockers. Verse 19, they cause division. Again, in the book of Proverbs, when we see that list that God hates, it's not only those who have haughty eyes or are prideful, but also those who sow discord among the brethren. Here, the profile of an apostate is this is one of the things they do. They cause division. Verse 19, worldly-minded. And then also in verse 19, without the Spirit, devoid of the Spirit. Well, I'm going to comfort your heart this evening as we make application and, and begin to pray. Is you, If you're honest, if you're a true child of God, you, we listen to messages like this and say, is this me? We, we know our struggles. We know our past. We know what the history, we know what God has saved us from. If we're genuine uh, children of God, all of us have a testimony and a story of grace. And I would tell you that the concern that you may have for your own heart or those that you love is a good concern. Apostates are not concerned. As we talked about doubt in the life of John the Baptist, doubt is not a, something to glorify or something to boast in, but doubt can be a good thing in that if you don't have true faith, Satan has nothing to attack. So run to Christ with that doubt. And I would say the same thing to you tonight if you've been struggling with unbelief, if you've struggled with submitting to God's plan or calling upon your life, if you've struggled with sexual issues or those types of things, come to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures have to say about it. Listen and confess your sins to the Lord. Ask Him for grace. Rest in the righteousness of Christ if you're truly born again in His child and say, God, help me to grow in righteousness, holiness, the Spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ. Help me to bear fruit that is in keeping with true repentance. And Father, guard me and keep me like your word says you will. And that's what Jude says as we conclude this evening, verse 24. I just love the fact that Jude brings this parallel doctrine of the preserving of the saints, the preserving grace of God with this blunt reality that there are those who are not what they say they are. But if you're truly his, know this, you rest securely in his hand. And what a comfort for us. So, we will read this as long as we're in Jude again and again and again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen and amen. The Lord bless you and keep you.